Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 92 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch and with me, hopefully without an axe, is my best friend and co-host Aaron. <laughs> um, here's Aaron. Oh, yeah, that'll work. <laughs> okay, that's if that's all you're going to give me, then I'm a happy camper. This week kicks off Kubrick Month, if you haven't guessed already, uh, where we talk about and celebrate four of the acclaimed director's feature films. I'm going to make a confession right now and say that I am not a Kubrick connoisseur. I've only seen a handful of his movies. So for me, this will be a lot of fun to explore two films I haven't seen and revisit a couple that I have. But before we get into that, because I know that's going to be a lot of brain power that we're going to have to uh, kind of get get ourselves geared up for, let's say we catch up a bit. Uh, Aaron, what have you been up to, my friend? Well, I love that you bring that up because the of the films that we're covering, I actually have seen all four of them, but... I would never have called myself a massive Kubrick fan, despite the fact that all four of these films we're covering, Patrick, for me, have all always been in my five-star range. I've always considered them all to be practically masterpieces, but for some reason, I never would have put Kubrick in that conversation if you asked me who my favorite director was or who are who is one of, one of you know, give me your top five favorite directors. I probably never would have mentioned his name. And I didn't even realize that I had this kind of adoration for his filmography until we made this decision. So I think it's going to be really fun both to go through them with you and specifically the ones that you haven't seen. I love I love getting those first takes from one of us. But for me, I'm looking forward to maybe getting some clarity as to even why I do feel the way I do about these movies. Yeah, Kubrick's a complicated guy, uh, at least from the things I've read and seeing the stuff that I've seen of him and read about fan theories and things around his movies. He's just quirky. He's original. He's unique. I mean, you could, you could say a lot of, you could throw a lot of adjectives at him as a director, but one thing he's not is boring. And I think that if you look at his filmography as a whole, you see a wide gamut of things that are, that are explored in uh, a lot of, a lot of just, ranges so you've got something like spartacus and then you've got something like 2001 the shining um just it's just this handful of things eyes wide shut i think was his last one before he passed away there's just a there's just a gamut and unlike christopher nolan whose filmography we sort of went through not all of them obviously but we went through chronologically to see if we could catch some um some some trends and whatnot then unlike that we have kubrick here where we're just kind of catching a um catching a real just diverse amount of what his film style is, what his storytelling elements are and, and how he approaches uh, various, uh, various things, whether it's a book adaptation or an original thing or <laughs> something of maybe a historical reference point <laughs> with yeah. something like, like Dr. Strangelove. That's something I'm looking forward to is just seeing where his, his Kubrick touch comes in within these individual movies that we're going to, we're going to be talking about. Yeah, me as well. I'm excited for that, and I think it will be a good time. But like you said, before we jump into our first episode of Kubrick Month, um, one more quick plug before we do that. If you have just become a new listener to the Feel and Film Podcast, we this is our second annual 
time for doing this director month in January. Last year, we went through four or five of Christopher Nolan's films. Uh, please go check those episodes out. Christopher Nolan is kind of, I think I would say, Patrick and I's combined number one director. Agreed. Pretty easily. So uh, we had a lot of fun. We had some special guests on a couple of those episodes, I think, at least one. Um, Andrew Dice of Screen Rant was on our Interstellar episode. And then we had covered The Prestige uh, a couple months before the Director's Month. So that's out there as well. But check those out in our episode catalog. We really enjoyed those films. Uh, and then that's what gave us this idea to every January just pick a director and find four of their best films and, and go through them. So, all right. With that being said, you asked me what I have been up to, and I will tell you what I've been up to, Patrick. This past week, uh, I see a chance to see a couple of new films that are coming out. And what I'm going to be doing here in 2018 is making more of a concerted effort to use this what we've been up to time to just give a couple quick reviews for whatever films I've screened in the week prior. So you can expect to hear about movies that are coming out that week or relatively soon. Uh, or maybe that have just released, et cetera. So the first of those is Insidious The Last Key. Now, this is the fourth entry in a horror franchise that was originally started by James Wan prior to his work in The Conjuring universe. And I have always kind of loved these films or thought I loved these films. Get back to that whole, this is what I think I feel aspect, where when Insidious 3 came out, I actually saw a marathon in the theater of 1, 2, and 3, back to back to back. And I've always just thought, oh, you know, these these are really, really high up there for me. Maybe it's because I've been watching a lot more horror in the last couple of years than I ever have in the rest of my life. But I rewatched Insidious 1 and 2 and 3 prior to seeing this latest one, and I discovered that while I really do like 1 and 2, and they're above average horror films for me, they're not special. And I don't have this amazing like love for the series where I, I would defend it against everything else. So I went into Insidious 4 a little bit worried. This is the fourth entry in a franchise. James Wan was not, uh, not the director for number three, and he certainly is not the director for number four. This one has a, an unknown horror film director who has only like one or two credits to his name that was directing this. And what happened is when James Wan and a, a writer named Lee Wanell decided to make a movie called Saw that blew up, they then later collaborated on Insidious. And then Lee Wanell kind of took the story and ran with it. He was actually the director of Insidious 3, and he's the writer here in Insidious 4. My problems with Insidious 4, the last key, are that Wanell really writes himself into the story in a big way. My guess is, Patrick, that you haven't seen any of these movies, so you're not going to be able to, yeah, you're shaking your head. Okay, we we, we knew that. Our listeners were, are not surprised. <laughs> uh, well, Lee Wanell plays a character called Specs. Uh, he's part of a duo of this ghost hunting team, Specs and Tucker, who work with the um, telep telepathist uh, Elise to kind of help out with these ghost possession issues. So his character Specs and his cohort Tucker have progressively become a bigger thing as the movies went along. And in this one, they almost it almost feels like they're taking center stage, but they're doing so in a comedic way. So it, I really felt like 1L is like trying to write himself into the story more and more. And it's just, it's a failure. It's, it's supposed to be a horror movie. Most of it is jump scares. Maybe a few of them hit, 
Um, the story as it just it starts off pretty strong and it just as it goes, it gets more and more convoluted to the point where at the end, literally when critics are texting each other right after a movie saying, hey, did you get this? That's not a good thing. OK, that's a bad sign. Unless it's a Christopher Nolan movie, in which case it's probably a good sign. But in this in this case, it's not a good thing. Um, and so I just I was really let down by this one. I didn't enjoy it. And Patrick, it's weird. I don't know if it's the stuff going on with Hollywood or me just changing as a person, but for the first time in my life, I really noticed this male gaze. I don't know if you've heard that phrase used. I have not. Okay, so male gaze is used to refer to a filmmaker, a director usually, who looks at their female characters in the way that a man would look at their female characters versus the way that a woman would look at their female characters. So usually some sort of maybe a more of a sexual aspect to the way they're framing their female characters. I mean like a Michael Bay approach. That is more of like a explosive gaze. <laughs> if, if but yes, no. I guess I, if you mean in sexualizing his characters, but we won't yes. get into that. That's what I'm no, that's you're, what, you're absolutely right. If we're talking about um what's her name? Megan Megan Fox. Megan Fox on a on a car in the first Transformers, yes, that is the male gaze. Okay. Gotcha. okay. So in this movie, it actually stuck out to me. There's a moment where a female character who – his two female side female teenage young leads are very attractive, but they're kind of like wasted in this movie. They don't get to do a lot, and it just feels like they're there for eye candy, frankly. But there's a moment where one's laying on the ground unable to to move, and the camera is setting directly beside her body, and her chest is just heaving up and down, right? Her, her breasts are moving up and down, like extremely high and low, with the monster in the far distance kind of creeping toward her, making noise. But it's not – the point is you're not like focusing on the fact that the monster's there because your screen is oh, – over half of your screen is taken up by her chest, moving up and down. To me, that was a very distinct male gaze, right? He's drawing us attention to her in a sexual nature versus – I couldn't even focus on the fact that she's scared. If that makes sense. And so I felt like that took me out of the movie. And just that, the story, it just fell all apart. And anyway, it's time to, as I said in my written review, we need to throw away the last key and lock the door on the Insidious franchise because it has a couple good entries, but it's it's time to to be gone. Um, the second movie that I saw this week was actually a pretty cool story, and I'll, I'll hit on this briefly. Um, it's called Paddington 2. And I don't know if you've seen Paddington 1. A lot of people have not. Patrick's giving a thumbs up. I think that means he's seen it. No, that means he's going to see it because Paddington 2 really got me excited about wanting to see the original. Good. I highly recommend it. However, I will also tell listeners that it is not necessary. Um, Paddington's backstory, while good, and that Paddington 1 was a surprisingly sweet movie and a huge critical success, but didn't really – I mean it still kind of hasn't been seen by a lot of people. Uh, stars Nicole Kidman. Uh, she's in it, and, and as well as a who's who of British actors um, and fantastic talent. So it, I think it's worth seeking out, but this one does stand on its own if you don't have time or or just want to skip it. That being said, a buddy texted me Friday night and said, hey, am I going to see you at Paddington tomorrow? And I was like, no. Why would A, why would I go to Paddington 2? B, I don't remember ever being invited to that. He's like, yeah, we got it back like the week of Christmas is when they sent the invite. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, I probably skipped over that. Well, I turned to my kids. I was like, hey, guys, you have any interest in going to see Paddington 2 tomorrow? And they both went, yes. I said, oh, crap. <laughs> well, now I'm committed. So 
I uh, got a hold of my marketing director and was able to to get us in. We get in their seats. My expectations, Patrick, are they're low. I mean, I've seen the reg- original Paddington and I liked it. I thought it was really, really charming and sweet. But I, you know, I don't know. I just this movie is going to be cute and good. I walked out of this film on such a high. I cannot tell you how much I love this movie. It is one of the most surprising films I've ever seen because it is so darn near perfect. I I don't even know if I, I hate to use that word because I feel weird. Here we are four, five, six days into January, 2018. And I have found a movie that I truly feel could be in my top 10 at the end of the year. It's that good. Not just from that charming side, which it has that in spades, but it's an adventure story. It's got one of the best performances of Hugh Grant's career. It's the best one I've seen in years. I, I blown away by his character in this movie. He plays an actor who is washed up and is now a dog's food, dog food salesman. And he can't come to grips with that. And so he plays this cast of characters. Um, I saw it referred to somewhere as like a goofy version of James McAvoy in Split. And that's kind of what it turns out to be in some ways. But he's he's like the villain and it's it's phenomenal. He steals every scene. Brendan Gleeson is also in this film as an, a chef in a prison where Paddington ends up. And his name is Knuckles McGinty. Okay. Brendan Gleeson as Knuckles McGinty. Like it, this is, it is, it is wonderful. It is so heartwarming. Um, it's more hilarious than the original. The performances are even better and stronger. The story is stronger. I mean, we've got all kinds of awesome, fun sequences, including like a train chase. I think it was amazing. Not only that, but like from a technical standpoint, it felt like I was watching a Wes Anderson movie in many ways, like almost like the Grand Budapest Hotel. The colors popping off the screen, the way that scenes are shot, the framing with things centered or the camera pulled back and these long, wide-angled shots. And it it's really just a work of art. And I was constantly amazed and in awe of what I was seeing, that all of this wrapped up into this perfect PG family movie. I immediately wanted to see it again as soon as it was over. It has one of the best post-credit scenes that I, I've ever seen in my entire life. I, I would put it up there with anything I've ever seen. It was just perfect. So Paddington 2 of all the things in the world, I never thought I'd even be talking about it this weekend, much less recommending it and going gaga over it. But I, I think everyone needs to give this film a chance. Uh, and I, you will not be disappointed. You, you won't. Well, I'm not surprised that I'm getting this from you. This is the same person who championed my little pony last year. So I, I don't, okay. well, let me, let me, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not, I'm, bring I'm, it down. I'm, I'm not, no, I'm not making fun <laughs> of you. What I'm saying is you, you actually bring up a great point because as the as the year goes on, anytime someone talks about The Greatest Showman, I'm going to champion it. And it's a movie, I think in a lot of ways, like Paddington, that because of its sugar aspect. Yes, that's a great it's, word. It's, it's not, it, it won't get a lot of the credibility that I think it deserves in terms of its technical prowess. And I think I like that you're saying this about Paddington too, and giving giving a sense of excitement about the fact that this is a movie. I mean, you, you made it, you made in your, in your recommendation, you basically said all this from a PG movie because our expectations, I mean, having just 
watched the Golden Globes this evening, we're never, and for legit reasons, we're never going to see movies like Paddington 2 or The Greatest Showman be up there in terms of being competitive with movies that say something about culture or that have something important to talk about. And and from a film standpoint, whatever, I, I get all that. But I think that as a separate note, or at least as, as a, as a way to kind of step into this, we, there needs to be opportunities for these movies to shine and not to be written off as it's cute and everything, but it's amazing. You know, we don't need to, we don't need to justify its greatness by kind of bringing it down to a, it's, it's really cute, but no, you can say it's a great movie. And I, and I think it's, it's good to hear movies like this being championed again. I'm not going to put it up there with Blade Runner 2049 or these really thought provoking heart shattering films that deserve the accolades that they get because the movies that, that are being, being shined on uh, rightly deserve that. But I want more opportunities for these movies that are really well done, have a good message. Oh, and yes, that are approachable by more than a sliver of an audience to get the love that they deserve. So I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're saying that. And I'm excited about seeing it too. I, I've, I've wanted to see it. There were a couple of moments in the trailers, particularly like the line where one of the characters is saying, uh, you're breaking and entering. We haven't broken anything yet. And then of course the vase drops. I think that's just hysterical. Dude. It's, it's amazing. I mean, like I said, I, with Hugh Grant and Brendan Gleeson, it also has Peter Capaldi, who is uh, one of the most recent doctor who's mm-hmm. um, it's got, it's, oh, it's just, it's Sally Hawkins, uh, up for best, best actress right now with Shape of the Water, the Shape of Water. Um, she's in it as the mom, and it's just the way the family is depicted is it's so sweet. It's it's not it's it's not crappy. It's a it's a happy work look at the world and it and at people in general and the way they interact. And Paddington does nothing but bring joy to everyone around him, you know. And it all even has like an it's a wonderful life esque moment at the end of it that that makes you think, oh, people finally realize what he's done for them, even though he doesn't. And it's, it's a charming movie. And if you would like to read more about either one of these, you can find those on feelandfilm.com. You can find the the full written reviews, but yeah, I'm glad. And I'm excited to hear what you think about it when you get around to them. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be later unless I, I've got some, um, I got a bunch of gift cards to the movies, uh, courtesy of my family for, I don't know, for some weird reason that thought I go to the movies a lot, but I've got some, uh, some, gift cards to a theater that's not close to me. And so if I have an opportunity to see movies that uh, are during the week, during their cheap, cheap nights, I'll probably go use that for Paddington too. Well, this week kicks off 2018 officially or this past week. And I know that a lot of us were talking about directors that we want to watch their chronology, watch their film chronology. I know Reed Lackey, one of our contributors is, uh, doing one on Clint Eastwood. I know that there are several for uh, Steven Spielberg and uh, our, one of our favorite anime directors, Miyazaki. And I've unofficially jumped on board with the Miyazaki discography, or not discography, but filmography as a director. But really, I'm using that as a caveat to explore more anime, uh, not to completely dive into the deep end of the pool, but to kind of wade in the shallow water. Because as I've said before, uh, through my reviews and through the show, anime is just not something that comes naturally to me as far as my enjoyment of it. It's it's not something that I gravitate towards much like um, Westerns or uh, period pieces. These are just not the things that I'm like, yes, I want to check this out. And so part of what I want to do is 
get a better range, not just Miyazaki stuff, but also other filmmakers. Uh, Your Name was a great segue into that. It wasn't a Miyazaki film. It was one of my favorites of 2017. So to be able to to get to do that is, is something I'm really excited about. And in preparing for tonight's episode, I revisited the now defunct, uh, sadly, now defunct web series called Every Frame a Painting. And I remember there's a, I'm pretty sure we'll bring this up in the, in the discussion about, about tracking and about lateral uh, camera movements and how Kubrick is one of the connoisseurs of this lateral tracking shot. And I remember watching one of these web series, web series videos about la- the lateral tracking shot. And so I wanted to review that. I wanted to see what, what the, the guy from every frame of painting was saying about it, but he opens it up by talking about a movie that he recommends called the wolf children. And it's an anime. It came out in 2012 and it is directed by a guy named Mamoru Hosada. And I apologize if I am butchering his name. Who knows, man? Good. good sounds good to me. Okay. And he's got a handful of, he's got a handful of movies under his belt. He, uh, he's done a movie called the girl who leapt through time, summer wars, and his most recent as a director is the boy and the beast. And so at the end of this, in this web video, he, in this video, he, he talks about how this is one of his favorite lateral tracking shots. And the fact that it's so surprising is the fact that it's, you know, done with animation. It's not an actual camera movement. And he describes why he likes it so much. So I thought this would be a great beginning entry, the 2018 start of my anime introduction to, to visit this. And the Wolf Children, what's interesting to me, and one thing I loved about your name was the fact that it, I think what I'm enjoying about the anime that I've seen is I love ordinary stories. And I say ordinary in the sense that they're not boring, but they're just slice of life, could be coming of age, but stories that are connectable with an extraordinary element to them. And I think that's what I like about a lot of my stories. I, I, I tend to kind of get away from the epic fantasies because there's kind of too much fantasy for me. Star Wars is exciting for me but there's still a lot of that space opera-ness and I still need my grounded characters. So the wolf children does this exact same thing. It's about a woman who falls in love and she has two children. But the thing that makes it interesting is that her husband is part wolf. And that sounds absurd. And I'm reading this premise and I'm going, okay. Guillermo, uh, Guillermo del Toro help with this. I hope like not a, because sounds like this kind of story. It's, yeah, it's he may have had a distant hand in it, at least maybe <laughs> in the mind of of of, of Hosada. But it it's so come to find out this is a small spoiler, but it happens early in the film. Her husband dies uh, uh, for unknown reasons, like it's never discovered why he dies, and so she is forced to raise these two children on her own, and both of them have inherited this part wolf trait. And so the, 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 where the story really gets me is that it uses that element as a means to talk about what it means to grow up as a single mom, a young single mom to start over. Uh, They end up moving away from the city and trying to uh, reconnect in the country. So it's about her finding connection 
with people, but also finding, finding a way to, to work in isolation, to live in this house that she has to build kind of, it's, it's a rundown home and she's basically having to start over. And what I really, really connected with was seeing how the elements of them being wolves wasn't the thing. It was a character trait that I definitely didn't connect with because I'm not a wolf, but these guys had to deal with understanding who they were as kids. And so ultimately it's, it's a story about two kids growing up and trying to deal with being different in their own ways. Uh, one of them, it's a, it's a daughter and a son, a boy and a girl. And, and they're both trying to figure out ways to manage this other side of themselves that they're just trying to wonder, is this a mistake? Should I have, you know, why do I have to be this way? And so as the story progresses, we get almost three separate storylines. We get the boy's storyline, we get the girl's storyline, and we get the mother's storyline. And we see how each one of them handles that part of themselves. Uh, the mom, who's not a wolf, obviously, and having to raise children who are at the very heart being children. Because if you and I both know having kids, it can be tough sometimes. So imagine having this other quality that you're having to deal with. And it's such a heartwarming story. I, I didn't know if I'd like it or not. And there were parts of it at the very beginning where I was like, I don't know if I'm buying this premise, but there are these little small story beats, these moments of silence and the music plays a, a, a significant factor in this. I really, really loved this story. It's, it's one that I think, um, I don't know a lot of people I'm going to check on social media to see who's heard of this, but it's, it's a story that I think is very relatable to anyone who's part of a family. I think a lot of people are obviously part of families, you know, but it, it's, it's relatable to single moms. It's relatable to kids who are, are trying to figure out who they're supposed to be and how they, how they, how they handle that, how they handle bullying and how they handle peer pressure and not fitting in in some ways. So in a lot of ways, it's a coming of age story for each one of these characters and it, it finishes the way it finishes is incredibly poetic and, and very satisfying. Uh, it left me with a sense of real satisfaction, which I didn't expect coming from an anime feature. And it, it really gets me excited about checking out more non-Studio Ghibli stuff, non-Miyazaki. I, I definitely will with, with my exploration of his stuff, but I want to, I want to explore more of uh, Hosada's filmography. He's got those other three. And so at some point this year, I'm going to probably uh, tackle those as well. But yeah, Wolf Children was an incredibly uh, sincere, heartwarming. And it's it's one of those that I think uh, deserves a lot of attention. Well, that's awesome. I had heard of it and I've definitely heard of The Girl Who Left Through Time. That's been on my watch list for a while simply because of the premise of, of it. Uh, it sounds right up my alley as well. So whenever you watch that one, let me know and I'll I'll try to watch it a long time alongside you around the same time so we can at least talk about it. Sounds good. Well, before we jump into our, I almost said Insidious. <laughs> See, I'm getting my horror films mixed up. Before Throw the key away. Throw the key away. Before we jump into our review of The Shining, our conversation here, um, we just want to say thank you to our new patrons, 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 Patreon patrons, um, Matt Carl, Ryan Kahn, and Gene Gossower. 
who knows if I'm saying that correctly or not. I feel like it's Hosada. Just say Hosada. That's what, yeah, that's easy. Or Miyazaki. Gene the Troll Gossower. But thank you guys for becoming our newest supporters. Um, We are currently in the voting period for our January donor pick episode. There are five pretty amazing science fiction films that are up for this. Uh, Becoming a supporter for as little as a dollar a month gets you a vote. And this month, um, like I said, that's what we're covering. Uh, I think it's Starship Troopers, District 9. Help me out, Patrick. Edge of Tomorrow. Um, I've lost my brain, too. I don't know why I'm blanking on the other two as well. Oh, um, Ender's Game. Ender's Game. And? RoboCop. <laughs> and RoboCop. RoboCop. Yeah. Starship Troopers, District 9, Ender's Game, RoboCop, Edge of Tomorrow. Those are the five. So... We're grateful for all of our supporters that have already jumped in and voted. Thank you guys, because because of you, we have been able to enhance our website for 2018. Um, it's a little bit easier now to um, get your your written reviews that we've been doing a lot of. You can find them right there on the landing page now, um, so you can see that faster. If you can't spare some change, but you do love the show, you can still help us grow. We would love to see what can happen if every listener shared feeling film with one or two friends, family, coworkers, leave a review on iTunes or a podcast catcher that you're using. Just consider these things a challenge for this week. If you do these, who knows how bitch bigger we can grow, what our reach can become. Um, and that just means more people joining this conversation, looking at film from um, how it affects us emotionally and uh, just enjoying going through that together, learning, growing, etc. But, with all that stuff out of the way, Patrick, what do you think? Are we going to spoil The Shining? As we always do on this on this podcast, we will spoil the heck out of it. And as I say this, uh, knowing that this is my first time watching it, I will say you should be you should have already watched this by now. If you if you're listening to the show, if you're catching this for the first time, just know that we are a full on spoiler podcast, and having know that this movie was in was was written in, and done in filmed in 1980 then uh you should already have watched it that being said sorry so patrick wh- when was the first time that uh you saw this film by the way yeah i'm already giving myself away this was like last week when i watched it for the <laughs> oh! first time. yeah <laughs> so i'm spoiling myself at that point <laughs> but as uh yes so it was my it was my first time this last week and i knew it was horror just from the things that I'd read, but it was low on the jump scare totem pole. And I, uh, of course I make sure of these things before we vet them. Cause you know, it's our show and we can do what we want, uh, which is why, <laughs> honestly, I'll just be honest. This is why movies like clockwork orange is not on this list of movies we're going to be covering this month. Cause I don't think my brain or my eyes could handle uh, that one, but knowing that it was horror and, but, but one that I could digest, having watched the Blair Witch Project this last year, I felt like I could probably handle something like this. And here's what happened. It created this really creepy feeling after I watched it. Not because I couldn't sleep, because I could, but it left me thinking a lot about the movie and everything that was going on with it. And it's just the way that Kubrick is. He just leaves you wondering. And I think that that's that's something that he has the power to do is wondering, what did I just watch? Wondering... Did I catch everything? Uh, wondering, is there more to the story than he's letting on? And so that 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 compelling nature 
it makes me want to rewatch it. And apparently I do need to rewatch it again because I think if I'm looking through our notes, you actually watched a different version than me. And I did some research. I actually watched the theatrical release, which is 114 minutes. And I believe there is a quote US release that was 144 minutes. So a lot of people will call that the director's cut. Uh, Kubrick actually refutes that. He says that his, his cut, the theatrical cut, the shorter one is the one that he considers his official like director's cut. So that being said, at some point soon, I'm going to rewatch the shining um, and find the, the 144 minute, 44 minute version, because I definitely felt like I missed some stuff. I don't think I missed anything plot wise. I mean, I got the basic story beats, but it's always nice to have more footage, right? Yeah. Well, when we're talking Kubrick, I think that that is generally a good thing. Um, because of the way that this man makes films. Yeah. Uh, I, I just checked my copy of the Blu-ray and sure enough, it is 144 minutes. I knew it was long and it, at times it feels long. Um, it is gorgeous. It is always gorgeous. That's one thing that you can say about Kubrick is whether maybe not gorgeous in the sense of like Roger Deakins cinematography, gorgeous, but the way in which he frames his painting as it were, uh, is always something to behold the way he uses angles and movement and tracking and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very artistic. I mean, he's just, he's a master at that. Yeah. So my first introduction to the shining was actually not too much more recent than yours. I guess it was maybe a decade ago. I mean, I, I guess that's 10 years, but I watched it the first time for a film one one class I was taking. And I remember doing a paper on this movie and I, I can't recall everything that the paper was about. And I, unfortunately I couldn't find it. I really wish I could have found that paper and seen what I thought about this film because I never revisited it until just now. I never felt the need to go back. Um, and I never wrote anything down. This was before I was into reviewing. I just gave it five stars and moved along, but it having been so long, I couldn't really put my finger on why I might've done that. And who knows what my rating criteria was back 10 years ago. So I really respected it, but I wasn't much of a horror fan and just didn't feel like I needed to to come back. Now, I will say I love the movie, having rewatched it. It's in that weird zone for me. And I, I had a conversation with um, our other our, our contributor, Don Shanahan, from Every Movie Has a Lesson, about this very thing, about how this movie falls in that zone where I can recognize that it is truly a masterpiece of the genre. Okay. This is a, a unique and special horror film that is kind of unlike anything else and specifically anything else that had come before it. But yet it's not the first one I'm going to put on when I want to go watch a horror movie again. I'm going to watch Blair Witch Project many more times before this. I'm going to watch The Cabin in the Woods 50 times before I watch The Shining again because I enjoy it more. But they fall in those, they hit those different the different notes for me, right? And this one, if I want to watch something that I feel is impeccably made from an artistic standpoint and I want to watch a master director at work, this is one I'm going to go to. Um, and in fact, it may be the one that I go to for that kind of feeling and that kind of approach to film uh, and how I'm taking it in. So I really love that this doesn't have a ton of jump scares. I like the slow burn nature of it. 
And I like that this is a ghost story unlike any other ghost story I'd, I'd ever seen. And I still really, you know, having seen Insidious this week again and having watched all four of them in the week, they're a ghost story. They're about possession from an otherworldly uh, spiritual thing. And kind of comparing those two, it, it just it shows the vast divide uh, between of how great Kubrick is and what he was able to do with and King as well. Stephen King, to be honest, I'm not one of those people that has read all of the Stephen King novels. I don't, I don't, uh, you know, worship at his altar of storytelling by any means, but I can see the genius in his writing and the way he crafts these stories. They're so personal in nature. And I guess that's why his books are like 1,500, 2,000 pages long, <laughs> because he takes the time to do that, um, which makes the shorter cut of this seem even more stunning to me, I guess, now in hindsight, knowing that that exists, right? To cut that material yeah. down even further than I even saw it. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I really like it, man. Yeah, I, I really did too. Kubrick is a is interesting. And I won't talk about him so much as a director in, in this film specific, as much as this film specifically is is a lot of things i mean it's definitely it should definitely be put into the horror genre because of the the types of of visuals that we get uh, there's definitely some drama to it albeit not as heavy as what we consider drama today uh there's definitely the thriller factor uh not the michael jackson song but obviously just the the sense of the sense of impending doom um the word that that i tried to pull out from this the one word that came out that i came away saying a lot was inevitable there's a lot of stuff in this movie that's inevitable from the very beginning you you get a sense of the inevitability of this family that something's going to go wrong <laughs> it's Absolutely. you're going you're going to colorado which is a nice place to live uh, but you're going to a hotel that's huge and you're the only three people living in there uh, over the course of a winter and nothing can you know nothing's going to go right in that situation the nonchalantness, by the way, of which that line is delivered is one of the standout things of this film to me. When he meets – when Jack and, and their family, they're meeting the the owner or whoever it is that runs the hotel, the Overlook, and he's telling them about that winter tragedy of 1970. And he says you know, that the, the man ran amok and killed his family with an axe, <laughs> stacked them up, and then put two barrels of a shotgun in his mouth. <laughs> you know, And he's just like ah. – it's that's crazy. That's what Jack, happened, you know. And Jack's like, "Well, my wife loves horror movies and scary I know, things, right?" Like, that's great. That's kind of meta. Yeah, yeah. but <laughs> it just I, it's right off the bat. And you, I remember just looking at the screen, going, are, "Are you crazy?" But you know, that's what horror is. And in many ways, we expect characters to do things that are not logical. And mm-hmm. this tells you right off the bat that maybe this is not logical, right? And our brains are. I guess we could say our brains have been trained to stuff that's not your typical slasher horror, like your Nightmare on the Streets or your Screams. We're, we're looking for things. We're looking for stuff to kind of give us hints at either what's coming or looking back on. Yeah, I guess we've got the 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 Shyamalan mentality of like, hey, did we miss something in this? Because this feels like a thriller. This feels like split in terms of of the, hey, what's actually going on here? Because there's a lot... And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that there's not a ton of dialogue throughout a lot of the movie. We get just a lot of visual interpretation. We get a lot of sound. We get a lot of music, things that are sort of informing our own subjective opinions about what's going on here. Of course, we get 
your obvious moments. We get two girls and we get bloody corpses and we get bears doing things to other people in hotel rooms. Uh, we get uh, flashbacks in 1920s. And we, we get a lot of stuff for our eyes and ears to, to see and hear. But I think what Kubrick does in this one, and I'm sure in other ones, as we'll talk more about this month, is he leaves stuff open to interpretation. Whether intentionally or not, it still happens. And I know you and I this week, we watched the documentary Room 237. We which did. I don't, know if, I don't know if it's necessarily a documentary and more of just a long set of conversations with uh, with conspiracy theorists about The Shining. I'm glad you said that instead of just fans, because conspiracy theorists fits it much better. And I, I agree. I think as as I went through about half of this, I just kept shaking my head going, what? No, no. <laughs> I just, uh, I, no. That and, one's a little bit off. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> and, and by the end, I'm like, I should be drinking right now because this is really too entertaining to be sober. At least I'm thinking these fan theories are probably thinking the same thing. Like, what are you doing? Well, there was an apple on this one scene in the bar. And so really what Kubrick is trying to say, Patrick, is that this is an unconventional and unintended sequel to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And the Overlook Hotel is the witch. Ah. And yeah, I mean, and see, that's how, but that's how I felt like about some of these theories. Like that's yeah. as much connection as there is. It's, 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 it's incredibly entertaining and incredibly absurd all at the same time. But it, it really kind of raises the question for me specifically, why is there such an appeal to make a movie, this specific movie? I'm not going to talk about any of his other films. Let's just talk about The Shining because that's what this episode is centered on. Why the appeal to make The Shining more than it is? I, I read an interview with him and he said, it's a ghost story. <laughs> he was very much a uh, a cigar is just a cigar kind of guy when it came to this. He wanted to write a really good ghost story. He had good source material, um, even if he and the author had <laughs> their own uh, subjective arguments about certain things. But in your opinion, do you, do you have your own theory as to why there's such an appeal to make more of, of a movie like this than it is? You know, I don't know why this one specifically evoked that feeling in fans. I, I don't know that we ever are, are going to fully understand why certain movies resonate that way. There's nothing about this one that jumped out to me the first time I saw it and made me think, oh, this has got me super confused. Or maybe there's a million different things going on. Maybe it came around at a time when movies weren't making leaving that much room for questions um you know we live in a generation that grew up largely with christopher nolan through our 20s now and, and into our 30s so we've become used to filmmakers who who do this more often M movies like the usual suspects that, that play with our expectations mm -hmm. that wasn't really a normal way of making film back when kubrick was doing his thing he was really the only one or one of the only ones kurosawa did some of that as well um, I know, but th there's not a lot. So maybe that had something to do with it. I, I really, I don't know. And then maybe part of it is that Stephen King aspect. This is a book that people loved. So it was an adaptation. And you're not just talking about movie and film fans for, for here. You're talking about, you know, people who came to the film from reading the book. And mm -hmm. we know that Stephen King has some fanatical fans. So I, I just, I don't know. I, I, some of these things are just so bonkers. I just still can't believe that they exist. This whole Minotaur and a maze thing. And 
I, I mean, it was, it's definitely entertaining. And listeners, if you've not seen it, it's currently streaming on Hulu right now. It, it dropped off of Netflix. It was there for a while, but now it's on Hulu. I don't know where you saw it, Patrick. Um, but it is, it's worth watching. It is, it is entertaining, um, to say the least. It didn't change anything about my feelings on the film. I enjoy looking at this movie and thinking about it and talking about it as strictly a ghost story. You know, is the hotel alive? Is it not alive? You know, what's Jack seeing that's real versus what's mm-hmm. Jack seeing that's not real and things like that. Right. Good enough for me. I, I agree. It's it's good enough for me as well because there's enough about the movie on its own that doesn't merit social commentary. And I, I, I think my theory is twofold. One as a as people as a person it's nice to be able to feel like you have an inside scoop on what a creator is trying to do i know that you and i got a little bit of a cinematic high when we made that discovery about passengers that we our fan theory is that what the ship is actually sentient and and all That's slack it. that we're given aside i think we're both pretty proud of the fact that that could be what's what's going on right you know what? That is a fantastic example because I had not ever really thought about it until you just now mentioned it, but you're right because we came up with our own idea of what the movie means to us and it has enhanced both of our opinions of the film because we kind of have that as a in our heads as a possible lens to view the story through and it takes care of some of our criticisms. So maybe that's what these folks have been doing as well. Mm-hmm. They find a way that they want to view the movie and for them, it elevates it. It makes it into something different. And, and that's why I'm not like making fun of them. I, mean, I guess I'm poking fun at them a little bit. Some of the theories are kind of silly, but I would never say no one should do this because if this is how you want to enjoy a film, you know, it's a personal enjoyment of a movie is personal. And, you know, you may not be doing what the intender, the intender director, ooh, what the, I'm not drinking, I swear. Um, you may not be you looking at it the way that the director intended you to, but it's just like I always say about art being subjective, you know, and, and so I may get something different out of seeing the painting scream than, than you do. It may re, I may react completely differently. And this is, this is an aspect of that. Right. The other the other thing I think that reinforces that is the fact that Kubrick is a poet, a visual poet when it comes to his movies. Again, if you look at his if you look at his filmography, it's it's really wide open in terms of the stories that he tells or the stories that he adapts. But his visuals are really consistent in that. And we'll get into that here in a little bit. But I think what he does is is very much poetic. And you mentioned that this would not be a movie that you will, would be your go-to in terms of just diving into a horror movie. But if you wanted to dive into a piece of art, if you wanted to dive into something that was compelling from an artistic point of view, this would definitely be a, if not the movie that you, that you go to. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. So when you attach subjectivity to it, when you attach a fan theory to it, it gives it more meaning. It gives it more value. And that caters to what you mentioned before. It's a great, I mean, it's a great point. And I think that that's what makes films so great. <laughs> and at the same time, why they can be so divisive because everyone comes away with a feeling or an interpretation, especially when you have a movie like The Shining, that it doesn't explain a lot. 
which I think is really great and really bad at the same time because it evokes a lot of different things. I think it's better. It's a better movie because of it, not necessarily because it opens itself up to a number of interpretations, but that it invites multiple viewings to catch more things. I mean, I'm legitimately, I'm saying this, I mean, I could say it for the show, but I'm saying it right now to you. I want to watch this movie again. I want to be able to catch the longer version so I can see more of the scenes and see how they are stitched together within the other ones that I haven't seen. I, 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 there's something nice about staring at a painting that you're in love with and wanting to, you know, you, you, you love it, but you want to keep staring at it because you don't want, you don't want to miss these little things that you've, that you, you see on your first viewing. So when you, you know, the Mona Lisa, for instance, you see her face, but you want to go back and you want to see all the little other intricacies that make, make that painting uh, what it is. Like the unexpected playgirl in a man's hands while he's just in the hotel lobby, right? Things like that. <laughs> see, that's when you derail things for me. You I'm know. just, no, I, I actually, <laughs> I'm sorry. I know, but you know, in all honesty, I think that that's amazing. And for me, you know, as someone who's gotten out to talk with you about several horror films, knowing your taste, I think it's great. And that is part of your reaction to the film and wanting to do that is what makes this stand out. Mm-hmm. What makes it so different in the genre? It's accessible as well mm-hmm. um, beyond what the genre typically is for people. Um, and so I, I love that you're having that, that type of reaction. And that's, that's again, and it goes back to Kubrick, you know, it's all, it's all about Kubrick here. But I think it's about the fact that this story isn't just horror. It's a survival story. It's a ghost story. It's a story about isolation. And these are things that a lot of people can gravitate towards. If it were just a ghost story, it would appeal to a certain audience. If it were just a survival story, it would appeal to a certain audience. Now, those audiences could overlap. But Kubrick does a lot in this movie that I don't think you get, at least in terms of depth. And I think that's really where he shines, no pun intended, is the fact that you have a really decently fleshed out ghost story that's also coupled with a really good survival story and also mixed together with a story about isolation. There are elements of his story that we connect with as humans emotionally. There are elements of the story that we connect with as those as fans who want to be entertained. And there are elements of the story that we connect with as artists or folks that want to appreciate it as art. And when a movie can do that on multiple levels, that's what makes it great. I won't call it a masterpiece because that word has definitely been been thrown around quite a bit. I will say it's definitely one of his best. And having not seen all of his filmography, I can't make that objective uh, that objective decision. But I don't think I can make that objective decision regardless of whether I saw his movies. It's Kubrick's horror masterpiece. Uh, that's for sure. So I'll, <laughs> let's leave it there. It's his horror masterpiece that takes place in 1980 with Jack Nicholson. So, you know, there we go. We're perfect. Yeah. <laughs> but let's get into the story because that's one of the more compelling things is if a story is compelling, it's worth talking about. And I wanted to talk a little bit about Jack. Um, fitting that maybe we have the same character, Jack Nicholson, Jack, you know, this guy. And one of the things that I walked away thinking was, we see Jack go through a progression. Uh, you can agree or disagree. This might be a point of contention for us, but I saw him going through a progression of being one person 
and ending up as another. Whatever the the factors were that influenced that. But I see him going from being a decent guy with a family that's trying to find a way to get some financial gain and at the same time finish a novel or finish his writing, have a place to to isolate himself. And he eventually goes, I guess we can use the word bad, crazy, uh, whatever you want to give him the character trait. But I'm wondering at what point did you, first of all, did you see him progressing that way? And if so, you know, was he bad to begin with, or did you see a progression of being bad? And if you did, at what point was there a turning point for him to go from being like this guy to, oh my gosh, this guy? Well, I definitely see a little differently. I think I view him as a character more the way that Stephen King has mentioned that he views Jack Nicholson in this role. Um, he's been quoted as saying that he told Kubrick uh, he didn't, he was not a fan of the Jack Nicholson casting and not because he doesn't didn't appreciate Jack's work, but because he said that Jack Nicholson had an inherent sinister look to him. And I feel like that's very true. Nicholson was coming off of uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest having been been done previously in which he played kind of the same kind of character. We've seen him do this work later in life with Batman as the Joker. He, he does this kind of thing very, very naturally. And for me, I felt like he was a character that was on the edge right away. Even when they're driving up to the overlook for the first time and they're in the car, he feels irritated with his family, kind of annoyed and the way he talks to them is just kind of like they're getting on his nerves and he's just, you know, he's, he's talking, he's, he's, he's not happy that he's had to quit drinking. He's not a fan of that. Um, and I got, I got the sense that his character had a lot more, just a lot more going on negatively about him in his past than we were being told specifically because there's another scene where Wendy is telling the story of how, um, Danny hurt himself. I think it's Danny and she's very apologetic and it, and it reminded me of the way that an abused wife responds. She's kind of making excuses about mm -hmm. how Danny dislocated his arm because, Oh, well, you know, Jack was just grabbing him to get him to stop. And he was just, you know, he, he did it just a little too hard, but he was drunk when he did that. And it's almost like she's saying, but it's okay because it, you know, it made him stop drinking. And, when you have a person that's reacting that way, I, I really felt like, okay, this, this man has a, a violent history, definitely tied to alcohol. He feels and looks on the edge to me at all times. And so though it wasn't his Joker, <laughs> a later Joker that said this, it reminded me a lot of like that scene with Heath Ledger where he's talking about how you just have to give him a little push, right? That's how I felt about Jack Nicholson's Jack Torrance was that he was right there. Like it was an inherent thing in his character already. And that the Overlook Hotel's possession of him didn't take much. It didn't take a lot to get him to that point to where he was going to go fully mad. So that's, that's how I read him. Yeah, I can, I can agree with that on a, on, in a lot of ways. I think that he was a character from the very beginning that was set up to fail or set up to be whatever it was. Now, everybody has a choice, and obviously there are several choices that are made in this movie uh, in, you know, by him, by Wendy, by 
I guess by, I don't know if Danny has any real choices, but we are, you're exactly right. That very first scene when Danny leans in and says, I'm hungry. I, I, I was almost, I almost pictured Jack kind of slapping in the face to get back to your seat. We're almost there. But, you know, Wendy pops in and says, well, we'll get you something when we get checked into the hotel. And he's like, yeah, just sit back, Danny, you know, and, and the, so you're you're exactly right. Jack Nicholson by default emits a sense of creepiness, not because he's creepy, but because his characters are inherently just misunderstood or at least they're at their base a little bit sinister. Um you know seeing him in a movie like as good as it gets was interesting because it took the movie itself, the whole movie for me to kind of love his character, for me to feel sympathetic for his character. But most of the time, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Batman, these movies really cater to what I think his strength is, and that's a strength of being sinister. And I think he's okay with that. I mean, I think as an actor, he's like, I get cast in these roles because I'm good at that, and I'm going to go ahead and embrace that. However, I think the movie does a fantastic job of taking him to a place of he could be, to a place of he is. And I don't know that it was a, I don't know that it was, when the hotel, I guess we can agree that the hotel basically takes possession of him. I don't know that he was, I'd like to believe that as a character, he always had a choice. And I think when he gave up that choice was when he went to the bar and we get that first glimpse of the 1920s in the gold room. And I feel like that's when, when he started saying, okay, something I'm not, I'm not, who I need to be. I need to be something else. And I think that's when he really starts taking a significant turn up till that point. He wasn't necessarily trustworthy. You mentioned the scene with, with Wendy saying that that's a scene that was actually cut from the 114 minute one. So, Oh, I'm sorry. So, so yeah, this is what I'm saying. I think there, there are parts of this movie that are going to inform our interpretation of characters. Uh, and I, I fully, I, I actually love that because I think, <laughs> We technically didn't see the same movie, but we saw enough of the same parts, yet there were parts that informed your opinion of of Jack that, that didn't inform mine. So I think I'm I'm definitely on board with the fact that he's set up for that from the very beginning, but I think he does go through a progression where he genuinely wants to be what he says he is, and that's he wants to be the caretaker for the winter so that he can spend some time uh, working on his novel. He never says anything about wanting to spend time with his family. No. And we, ne- we never get that. So I, I never get a sense that he's trying to be a good father or a good husband. I believe he's using this as an opportunity to get away, to get work done. Because mm-hmm. you know, I mean, all it is. You know, he's bringing, I mean, who does this? Who brings their family up here for this situation? Who comes because, up here? That's what I'm saying. It's like, nobody then, does it in general. Right. But who does it? If, if you care and you love your family, you're not doing this for them. You're doing it for you. And that was the sense that I got from him. He just, he feels to me like a monster that is just ready to crack at any moment. And and he feels like he's like, I feel when I'm watching the movie more so than I feel like it's a slow change of heart. I feel like I'm just waiting for the shoe to drop yeah. at every moment. Like I'm just, every time he's on screen, I'm like, is this going to be a snap? Is this going to be the snap? Is this going to well, be? Yeah, and we but get that's a little bit how we see it a little differently. It takes a little longer for you to start feeling that than it did for me. Well, and I get a hint of it when he snaps at Wendy. 
uh, when she's asking him about when he's working and he just goes off on her and says, don't, don't, uh, don't come in here when I'm working. If you hear it typing to be fair, Patrick, Wendy Torrance, Shelley Duvall in this movie, I would not be okay with Wendy bothering me ever. Okay. Like I probably would not have brought her to the hotel. She was my wife. (laughs) Because she is the one of the worst characters I've ever seen in a film. I, I I'm not, this is not a Shelley Duvall personal attack, but this is a Shelley Duvall performance attack. I hate it. I, I despise it. I feel like she is awful. Stephen King himself has said that she is just a, one of the most misog- misogynistic characters ever put on film, and that she's basically there just to scream and be stupid. And that's not the character that he wrote. And I've read, I've talked to people who read the book who agree that it is nothing like the character that he wrote. She is just there to annoy him and eventually get to the climax where she's chased. And so I, I don't blame Jack for snapping at her. I have to give him a pass on that. Well, let me tell you this. The only other film that I've seen her in. I know she's been in several, but the only other film that I've seen her in, Popeye, with Robin Williams. She's known as Ingrid. She's a olive oil. Olive oil. Yeah. Right. And her character in there is every bit as quirky and borderline annoying as in in this. I agree. Mm-hmm. I didn't like her very much. And it may be informed by that only performance that I've seen her in. So I don't know I don't know the the breadth of her her talent. But I do know that you're exactly right. She is, she's a screamer. You know, she is, she is the Kate Capshaw of, of this movie where Kate Capshaw is of, of the Temple of Doom. She's just there for, for scream relief. And there was really, there wasn't much about her that appealed to me other than the fact that she needed to help Danny escape. (laughs) And I, and I think that, it's it's sad because that's really all her role was because Danny really couldn't have gotten out of this without without her. Although he does make he does make some really cool efforts by you know making you know backtracking, you know walking in his footsteps and covering up his his steps in the maze uh, near the climax of the movie. But he still needs a car to get away and, and all this stuff. And I feel like you're right that it, it's a very cheap way to use her. And, um, while I wouldn't go so far as to say that I would be mad at her regardless, I do think that it informs, at least within the context of this movie, it informs my opinion of Jack's annoyance with her in general, that, that he's coming up here to do something. And by default, she's just going to be a negative for him. She and she and Danny actually, because that's not why he didn't. You're right. He's not coming up here for them. He's coming up here for himself. So it just makes perfect sense for him to not like her presence at all. Right. The, uh, the other thing that I, I, I thought was, was great about this is the non human factors of the story. Uh, room 237 comes to mind, the Overlook Hotel as a whole, but I want to touch on, uh, first the, the backstory of the killer. Yes. Humans, whatever, but the story itself, this ghost story that we as an audience, I think we feel like are going to get more of and personal opinion. I don't feel like, and I kind of like this. I don't feel like we got the complete story because there's a lot of fan theories out there that wonder, 
the two girls, the, the twin girls that show up, are they the ones that were killed? I want to clarify something. They are not okay. twins. They are actually like eight and six years old or something. They are separate ages. And if Sorry. you look close, no, I'm not mad. I'm just clarifying because everybody, even I, in my notes, I wrote down the twins. We all call them the twins, but they're not twins. They're not even the same age. So uh, I think it's a misnomer and thought we I would clarify that. The similarly dressed sisters. How about that? That is so much more accurate the, and longer to the, say. The, the SDS girls. <laughs> I call them the SDS girls. <laughs> the S um, ones. The, okay. And that's, yeah, that's a, that's a great example. So is it, correct me if I'm wrong or just correct me, period. Is it, is it told to us that these are the girls that were killed by the killer back in the, what, 60s, 20s, whenever from the story that we're told? Uh, no, it is implied. So it's implied, but it's not told. So correct. it's, it's somewhat ambiguous. I and, guess. Okay. Yeah, it's ambiguous. It, yes. It's it's ambiguous. It's implied, but you couple that with room 237 and the weird stuff going on in room 237. And by weird stuff, I mean, naked young girl who turns into an old naked girl, uh, both coming out of the water and kissing Jack at the same time. It's just weird stuff. And I think those, those two elements right there, room 237 and this, this backstory, Acts tragedy are what really inform the conspiracy theorists that there's more more going on here than we're actually being told by the director and by these characters. So, from your standpoint, what's the significance and um, what's the significance to you of Room Two Thirty Seven? Do you feel like it has a connection to? And I know the book explains it more thoroughly, but we're not talking about the book. We're talking about the movie. And if we're going by how Stephen King is saying, this is not my my shining uh from from the movie standpoint do you think there's a connection between room 237 do you think it's its own separate thing um what do you think about that well i haven't read the book so let me say that right off the bat so i don't know what the differences are other than what i've read in interviews but i this is going to come out i don't know if this makes me like a bad film fan or what but (laughs) Room 237 is one of the least interesting aspects of this movie to me. Okay. Okay. I I just don't care. And when you put things on screen that are so abstract to me that mm-hmm. I can't at least quickly form a logical theory of some sort, I don't want to waste my time and spend my time on them. So I find those scenes specifically with Jack and um, the woman, the young woman and the old woman to be very creepy and odd. But I, I watched them almost from a more technical viewer type of standpoint. I like the way the score is used in those scenes. I like the way that they're shot, um, mm-hmm. the way the framing is done but I don't give a lot of thought to, oh, what is that ghost or why is it there? What is the room doing to him? What is it trying to say to him? Is it trying to talk about his desires and and get at the heart of who he is as a person? I don't know. I just personally never gave it much thought and I just skip right over it and I move on and I'm more intrigued by the ghosts, the bartender, the um, janitor, I think is one of the other ones. Grady. And, Grady. Yeah. Or – is is he? Yeah, it's the it's the, the, waiter. the killer. Pat is the it's the past killer. The the well, guy it's who's the, it's the waiter. 
Oh, okay. The, the waiter that leads him into the bathroom and yes. talks about, yeah, one of the, it's, it's a Grady. It's not the Grady. Oh, it's not the Grady. Okay. It's not the, the Grady. The way that he kind of gives him advice, it seems like he is almost the same guy, but because um, he's telling him to kill the family. But um, yeah, so I, I'm much, much more intrigued by that stuff and just by the general creepy atmosphere of this film mm-hmm. it, to, for its horror, the way that things are shot and the way the score is always making – the score is very strange because it you, you'll have a seemingly gorgeous cinematic shot um, or just a normal everyday conversation and the score will get like horror noises on you and you're like, mm-hmm. what is going on? It's the weirdest thing and it, and it just – you know, gives you that overall sense of like inevitable dread, like you talked about. I'm sorry, I'm I'm getting on long winded, but I the point is, Room Two Thirty Seven doesn't play into my enjoyment of the film much. To be honest, yeah. I just kind of skip over it. Well, I'm glad you said that because Room Two Thirty Seven annoys me, and it's the least oh good compelling thing. Ooh. And this is this is this is why, as a budding filmmaker as I'm watching more movies and studying more about film, the thing that I understand is that when you case in point, when you take a glass of water and you pan into it and you stay on it for 15 seconds and then you cut away as a, as a, as a, as a, an audience, I'm thinking there's something significant about that glass of water. Why would you stay there that long? So at the beginning of the film or the middle part, when they're leading into the hotel and uh, and Danny is is asking about room two thirty seven, and and uh, the guy's saying, "Don't talk about it. Don't go there." And then fifteen twenty minutes later, we see him sitting there looking at the door, and it's just he's just the camera's just hanging on him, and then hanging on the door, and then we see the the not twin girls later on. We we start to we start as an audience, and I think this is. This is where I get frustrated. We start putting pieces together and we start trying to make those connections because we're sort of forced to, we're putting, we're having visuals put together instead of it's different than having just a series of scenes cut together. that are showing here's one moment. Here's another moment. Here's another moment. Even those things, if we're seeing different things play out, we're trying to piece those together and we're asking ourselves, what is the director? What is the cinematographer? What are these guys trying to do by putting this scene next to this scene next to this scene? So we get all this amp up about room 237 and then we get, we get the big, the big, like, ha, uh, Danny said that the, that someone tried to hurt him from room 237. So Jack goes in and then we get this whole weird sequence, artistically beautiful, but incredibly creepy sequence of him coming in, seeing this and being aroused by this young uh, naked woman she comes out, he kisses her, and then she turns into this old woman. Now, if you haven't read the book, you don't understand what the significance of all that is. And that's where my frustration comes from, is if Kubrick's writing this for fans of the book, then he's kind of being misinforming because according to him, he changed a good significant chunk of what the story, how the story plays out. So it's not really about the book fans. But if he's not, then he's not giving us as an audience who may or may not have read the book enough information about this room. Now, I'm going to be forgiving and I'm going to say that this is a product. This is one of many things about the hotel as a whole. And this is where I think the genius of the film is. The Overlook Hotel itself is the most compelling 
character in this entire movie to me because of what it does and without explaining it. Because we interpret and we can take all these visuals, all these seemingly insignificant or disjointed or disconnected events, these disconnected scenes, and we can blame it on the possession of the Overlook Hotel, which I think can be exclamation pointed by that last shot of the picture that we see of a young Jack back in the 1920s. Maybe that's kind of where I ended up with it. But that's where my forgiveness really lands is the fact that if you didn't have the Overlook Hotel as a whole being the thing that kind of took over all these people, all these people and, and became the overall possessive thing, room 237 just comes across as just weird and insignificant to me. If you would have left it as don't go in room 237 and you just kept focusing on it and never went in, I would have been fine with that because I could have drawn my own conclusions for it. And that would have probably been more entertaining for me than actually seeing that. Absolutely agree. And I think it's weird that you brought up passengers earlier because now that you've done that, I've suddenly drawing these parallels to the Overlook Hotel and the sentience of the ship and passengers. And maybe even passengers isn't the right choice. I went to passengers immediately because I was thinking about the the ghostly bartender in The Shining and thinking, well, hey, we have a, a bartender in the passengers. Maybe he's a maybe Arthur's really not a robot. Maybe he's a ghost. But it's something like Event Horizon, where the ship is your Overlook Hotel, right? It's it's The Shining in space in, in some ways. Um, space. <laughs> and I, I totally agree because the hotel itself is one of the most terrifying things, and it's it's all because of the setting. And I think that's why. That's how Kubrick shows his brilliance as a director and as a filmmaker, because it's it's the hotel and the way that the emptiness of it, um, it, it brings out that feeling of isolation you talked about. It's a feeling of of desolation. And it that's what's horrifying to us. That's where that feeling and that that sensation inside us watching this movie comes from, is that it's that vastness It's when it's, you know, completely silent. That's what's haunting. Mm -hmm. And so it's all about the atmosphere and the blood gushing out of the hotel, um, elevator elevator. doors, the room through through 37 sequence are almost like Kubrick's version of a jump scare. Mm -hmm. Right. That inexplicable. Whoa. Moment that seems out of place, but gets you kind of like freaked out when really it's that, atmospheric dread that growing feeling of um being alone and nowhere to go no way to get out of this that that you can figure out that's where the horror comes from so i absolutely agree with you that the hotel is number one and you could take room 237 out of this and i probably would enjoy it just as much right there seem to be a lot of open-ended stories that Again, I think they they inform the 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 conspiracy theorists for sure, and I think it's fitting that the documentary is called Room Two Thirty Seven because that's probably the most ambiguous from a movie standpoint of the of the theories. We can we can yeah we can infer that the not twin girls are the same ones that were hacked because obviously we get that here they are, and then Danny sees like them bloodied up to bits or whatever. Um. But then even, but, but there were other, other scenes. Again, there was one, one scene that was not in my cut and it was of the, the blue tinted gold room. I think it was with all the dead bodies. 
Uh, I'm, this is going to sound really creepy, but I'm excited about seeing that because I want to see where it is in the movie. I mean, I know it's during the final sequence when Wendy's running around, uh, trying to get away from Jack and, um, but just things like that. I think you're, I love the fact that you said that's his version of a jump scare because it is because it kind of, it kind of excites you for a minute. You're like, what did I just see? And that's what a jump scare does. It just, it doesn't make us ask, what did I just see? But it makes us go, huh. And it takes us out of the moment for a minute to kind of get recomposed. And to your point about theories, not to really go back to that and spend a lot of time on it, but just real quickly to say that I think also we as humans want to understand things. Mm -hmm. And when we can't understand them, we try to ascribe meaning to them. And so a lot of these fan theories are people trying to ascribe meaning to the things that Kubrick has put in there that are just confusing. It's, it's like the same fans that can't get the same enjoyment from inception because they need to know what happens to the top at the end. Right. If they don't know the answer. They need to find out. You need to ask the director what happens because you have not given me a complete story because I don't know what happens. Right. I, I've talked to Blade Runner 2049 fans who do not like where the story ends because it feels like there's this open-ended thing that needs to be dealt with. Right. But to me that I actually prefer films like that, but I can understand where people want to fill in those holes themselves. And so they look for meaning in within the movie that could, could give them a reason to to create a way to do that. And so maybe that's right. part of why people like these room Two Thirty Seven nutheads. I th- uh, <laughs> I I think you're right. I think ambiguity can be the best and worst part of a movie when we know that that's what it's going to be an ambiguous movie. Like I don't want to say like every Christopher Nolan movie because it's not, but Christopher Nolan plays with that ambiguity and that power of perception. Kubrick does this as well, but I think he leaves a nice period grammatical period to this movie. I think we have enough information to say, Oh, okay. What could that be? And we can discern our own or we can ask the director. I don't feel frustrated with it at all. I think it's a great completion to to this movie. The uh, The last thing I want to talk about is Danny. And what I think is a really great performance from from this from this young kid. And probably the the thing that most people who haven't even seen the movie will pull out of. And that's his uh, relationship with Tony who I don't know if this was a book reference or if it was a fan theory, but there is a, there is a creepy a aspect of it where Tony, his finger, red rum, red rum, you know, whatever. Is it his finger or is it in his mouth? I don't know. It's his Wherever finger, thing lives, but man. he has to speak from his mouth. Anyway, I don't, I don't know where he lives. Creepy, quote, but wherever this comes from, there is a, theory or there is a i don't know how to describe it because i don't know if it's true or not that tony is him from the future like is a future inter- it's a future version of of danny because the fir- his first name is anthony in, in that the, makes no sense to me what is danny and anthony those are two different names no no anthony danny torrance danny's his middle name oh interesting that's and, and tony is his first name wow. it's never revealed in the movie so again we're informed by other things um so i'm just going to leave it at i'm not going to say that's him from the future because it's something i don't even want to try to figure out that's more fan theory than anything else but from the movie standpoint we get this we get this just interesting performance by a kid who 
at the very beginning, we have this creepy voice coming out of his mouth and he's using his finger and say, okay, so Tony maybe is, we interpreted it first as his imaginary friend, but at the very beginning, when he says, you know, he already got the job, he's going to call and, and tell us that he got the job. And then the phone rings at that point, just from that very beginning moment, I'm like, oh my gosh, something is different about Danny. And then we get told that he has this thing called The Shining. I think that Danny as a character is a really fantastic connecting piece in all of this. I think he's a nice central figure that ties in the hotel with Jack, with all the other small weird things that are going on around around this whole story. But I think that's what makes him probably my favorite character is that we don't get a lot of who he is. We don't get a lot of backstory, um, at least not from the 114 minute cut, but we do get enough to understand that, that he, I think ultimately he's the central figure. You know, he's the one that if I were to take this into, I don't know, a spiritual realm, I think he's the good and the overlooks the evil. I think that he is the, there's, there's this weird, this is my kind of interpretation that he's the battle. It's the battle between him and the overlook and Jack sort of the, the um, he's the vessel that the, that the hotel is using to, to fight off what, what Danny represents. Again, I'm that's, that's me. I'm not going to call that my own personal, like feel and film gospel, but I think that's what makes his character so interesting for me. And, and I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed seeing his progression and seeing how he never lost his innocence as a kid, but he, he developed a sense of ingenuity. Uh, that whole sequence during the maze was, was tense for me because I was like, Oh my gosh, is he going to get caught? What's going to happen? And to see him kind of backtrack and, and hide his tracks and hide uh, was, was kind of a cool factor for me. Well, I will tell you that I actually absolutely agree with you. Uh, I think that's one of the most amazing things about the film is that the goodness of this movie, the good character in the film is creepy. And that's what makes it so special and so different is because we are seeing Danny in a way that evokes the same fear, the same creepy and scariness um, as it would if we see Jack being possessed because we don't know what's happening. And it's, the the way that the way the voice comes out with that exorcist like possession possession to it the mm-hmm. high pitch you know red rum red rum all that all of it 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 doesn't feel good mm-hmm. right and it's like it's almost like judging a book by its cover or or not not looking at the actions looking at the words that he's saying instead of what he actually does and letting that inform who he is as a character and in my connecting point I think it actually kind of speaks to this, to this idea of Jack of uh, Danny trying to be the peacemaker. He, he wants things to go right. He's trying to fight against the evil in the hotel. Yeah. And I think Tony is helping him do that. So I think of it spiritually as well. And it ties into just what I just saw the insidious series. When Danny has this one really scary scene where he's like um, talking about being possessed and he says, uh, Danny isn't Danny's gone away. Mrs. Torrance. That's mm-hmm. like it's one of the moments in the movie the most where I, I like I stop breathing for a second. I'm like, oh my gosh, like that's scary. And that reminds me of Insidious because Insidious, that's what happens. The body stays, 
but the spirit is in this place called the further and we get to see the further and it's the spirit walking away around lost, confused, like wandering. And it actually plays with time as well. I'm wondering if Juan, James Juan got some of the ideas of it from this idea because the shining talks about that. And, and so I feel that way when he says Danny's gone away, Mrs. Torrance, like the actual Danny is somewhere out there in the further walking around the spirit, Mm. you know, I'm trying to find his way back to take control of his own body so he can help fight against what the hotel and the the demonic nature of this, or I guess spiritual possessive nature this is trying to do. So yeah, I, I love that as well. And I think it's fascinating. This is a random side note that both Danny and Jack Nicholson's characters. Well, sorry, both, both of the characters names are the same as the actor names. So Danny is played by an, an actor named Danny and Jack is played by an actor named Jack. But wow, that's pretty that, wicked. That is pretty, the the juxtaposition of Tony's voice and what he ends up being as a savior helper as a positive is really interesting. There's that real interesting conflict because when you hear Tony's voice through Danny, that creepy <laughs> that just creepy voice. I mean, let's just call it that. It's what it is. But we find out over the course of the of the movie that he's actually good. He's actually there to help. Um, it's fascinating. And I think that ties in really well with the technical aspects of what Kubrick is known for. And there's a quote from every frame of painting. He says, Kubrick used these these specific tracking shots, the lateral tracking shots, as long as the as well as the followings, uh, the the shots that we get of of Danny uh going through the corridors. We see a lot of that, just the chase. Uh, camera movements. And then we get the lateral tracking shots of of the camera panning across, doing some parallax type of things where you have people walking, you have stuff happening in the background. And the guy from Every Frame of Painting, he said, Kubrick used this to show the way things were and not the way that we imagined them to be. He uses it in The Shining to build this sense of dread. And that's so true because what you said earlier, we have this beautiful cinematography, that very first scene the opening shot of this and of this helicopter because it's not from a drone I, I, in the in the days in the world that we live in where it's drone shots you know these really great aerials uh we're going back to 1980 and we have this just incredible wide shot being filmed by a uh but from a helicopter and we see this small car going up to this giant hotel but it's juxtaposed against this really creepy soundtrack He's like, ah, whatever. And I'm like, what am I getting myself into? And I'm almost traveling with Jack. I don't even know who he is yet. I'm just seeing this car, but I'm, I'm going up and I'm like, do I really want to dive into this story? And he does that to, to create that tension, the juxtaposition of these three people in a big hotel. And we see that bigness in the wide shots of the lobby, of the, of the kitchen, of the gold room. These, it's almost like this opposite of isolation. Well, it's this amplification of isolation because we see one guy in a big room and we know that these three people are in this giant hotel. And if that doesn't evoke a sense of real isolation, I don't know what does. Um, There's that creepy score that, that overlays all of that, that just enhances that too. Yeah, no, I, I think that the, the technical aspects are pretty incredible and that it's John Alcott is the cinematographer and, the opening scene is just, it's iconic to me. It's, it's the one that it, it set, you made it, you said it perfectly. It sets the mood is what it does. And 
it just gives you this gorgeous look at how far out they are and there's mm-hmm. nobody there's no one to call there's nobody coming for you yeah. um and you already you know that right off the bat before they even have dialogue that tell you that you know because of the the scene of the car driving through the windy mountains and the the tracking shots i just it's something that you and i both love as a filmmaking device and the one with danny's um on the big wheels and he's mm-hmm. driving throughout the hotel the, gr- the sound design in this scene is amazing because when his w- when his wheels move from the carpet to the floor the hardwood like you hear all of that very loudly you hear mm-hmm. the wheel move and the way that the sound changes um and it's just it's so expertly crafted yeah all around together and that's what gives that atmosphere yeah, I mean, it's like you wouldn't hear that if he was in a room full of people, and it wouldn't right. it wouldn't make him sound as isolated. It wouldn't make him sound as alone. I mean, when he's going through that, those scenes in particular, every corner that he took, I expected non twin girls to show up and just be there. Yes, exactly. On, and yes. I'm like, is he going to see him? Is he going to run into like a a dirty face, you know, gross face? He's going to run into like two thirty seven women, all grotesque. Is what's going to happen? And that's the question that always hits me when I watch those scenes. When Wendy runs around a corner, what's she going to see? And in 2018, that's what happens in a horror movie is Danny takes one or two turns and then boom, scary ghost, like standing right in front of him going, ah, and then, you know, that that's the horror. That's why yeah. it's scary. But what Kubrick does is, is so much more impactful to me. It's lasting. Well, lasting is the word that, that I was going to use too. He stays on those things for a long time. I mean, it, I feel like, Danny's run through the hotel takes five minutes as he's going through things. And what, what Kubrick's doing is showing you the vastness of the hotel and how easy it is to get lost in there. I mean, it's a maze and Kubrick does that intentionally to tell you you're going to get lost and your audience is getting, my audience is going to get lost with Danny because there's that sense of if I'm lost, I don't know where to go. The maze at the very end is a great, uh, a great just reprise of that. You know, he's going through the hotel early on and not knowing where he is. And now he's going through this maze and not knowing where he is. It's, uh, it, those are the moments that I feel like really, really, um, amp up the tension because we're lost with him. We don't know how to get out. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Well, you mentioned your connecting point earlier based on, uh, the performance of Danny and, and his story arc. Why don't you tell me a little bit more about where you connected with the most? Sure. So for me, I think my connecting point scene comes right after Danny has had his interaction or first interaction with the, the two girls. And it's when he sees the dead bloody bodies uh, with the ax beside them. And there's this, since we just talked about last thing, there's this lingering moment um, in darkness where we see Wendy and Danny watching TV and nothing's happening for a little while. Danny's moving around, maybe playing a little bit on the side. He's clearly like restless. He wants to move and do something and Wendy's, completely content to just sit and watch TV. And he asks if he can go to the room and get his fire engine to which Wendy says no, because daddy's asleep. Eventually she relents and he promises to be quiet. But when Danny gets there, we have this incredibly memorable scene of Jack sitting on the side of the bed, wide awake, almost in a trance. It's very, very scary, just staring out the window, scary in that, uh uh-oh, like that's not normal way. And he just looks very disheveled uh, and very creepy. 
especially when he kind of turns his head to look at Danny. And he calls Danny over and he picks him up and he puts him on his knee. And you're thinking, okay, we're going to get like some, some genuine like daddy son bonding moment here, which would feel weird in this movie. But hey, I can maybe we're moving forward, Kubrick. We're going to change some things up. But it's, he hugs him and kisses him. But like, it's their conversation here that affects me. Jack asks if Danny is having a good time. And he seems honest. He seems sincere in that question. Like he genuinely wants Danny to be having a good time. But then Danny asks him if he feels bad. And Jack says he's tired. He can't sleep because he has too much to do. Then Danny says, do you like the hotel? Which Jack says he loves it. And uh, Jack says that he wishes, he tells Danny he wishes they could stay there forever. But then it comes. Danny says, Dad, you would never hurt Mommy and me, would you? And there's this moment here that I feel like this honest innocence in Jack where the father like truly loves and connects with his son. But when this question comes, he says, I would never do anything to hurt you. And the way that Jack Nicholson's face looks in this moment, it is very clear that something has changed and something sinister has taken him over and that internally he is going to blame Wendy for Jan- for, for Danny even asking that question. And that you can, I mean, I can see and feel the projection of violence in this one brief moment in the way that Jack Nicholson looks when Danny asks him that question. And so to me, if there's a shift, like we were talking about earlier with the way in which Jack's descent kind of comes to a head, this is it for me because, and, and it, maybe it's just the one that moves me the most because I feel like it's incredibly heartbreaking. Danny tries to reach out to his dad. And this is what we were talking about earlier with, we feel like he's trying to stop that, stop that evil. And he's trying to reach his father in a, in a way that is emotional and, and, just so heartfelt and caring and it results in it it all going wrong, right? It just, it completely backfires. And from that point on, Jack is not, it is a very fast progression of his um, movement toward becoming a killer. And so that one for me is really the most impactful moment of the film. I actually, rewound it and watched it back a second time when it happened because it just every every bit of that scene was really really great and structured in a way that that made a lot of impact on me yeah that i mean it 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 sounds like it did and uh when i eventually get to see that scene i'll probably make that my connecting point too are you serious that's cut that's actually one of the cut scenes oh my goodness (laughs) and it may have changed my opinion of how i saw jack uh, steep into madness because my scene was really a, hinged on his breakdown and his 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 journey into madness, and it, it's the breakdown of in confrontation with Wendy, uh, starting with her discovery of the type pages and what I call the bat scene. The thing about The Shining that that I gravitate towards is the slow burn of that breakdown, and it's really the slow burn of the whole movie. Everything feels just very 
meticulous and thought out and slow would be a would be a great way to describe it. And watching him go from this one person at the beginning, who granted is very much a potential uh, a potential on the edge guy from the beginning, but go from that looking to use a few months of isolation to write his novel to a man in complete madness. Uh, as we find out from the hotel or the isolation, it was very fascinating. And I think that this scene solidified why I enjoy the movie so much, not because of how crazy he gets, but about the fact that it's really a movie that's, that can be centered around his breakdown because that's the real horror. The horror is not bloody dead body visions and, um, and young, you know, old women who are, are grotesque and coming out of bathtubs. All those, those are very much visual things that will stay with me, but in some ways it cheapened the complexity of who he was because I'm, I'm not quite sure how I feel about the ending. I think the ending sort of, it, it kind of brought me back around to it being a ghost story or a compelling story about the hotel. So I want another viewing to really kind of capture this, but I think what it did for me is it scared me more than I think a ghost or a jump scare might, because this could have been a real person. Like this was not a, an undead monster coming after a woman. And when he says something like Wendy, darling light of my life, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. I mean, this is a blunt dialogue here. This is, it's not him being clever. He's just like, I'm going to bash your brains in and using expletives that we can't say on the show. He goes on to kind of reinforce that, but this is true madness to me. Uh, highly quotable, but true madness. And it's why I gravitate towards Heath Ledger's portrayal of the Joker, because the performances like this are honest. And this is a very honest portrayal of what it means to go mad. And in some ways it's very sad and scary and intriguing all at the same time. And in some ways I understand that not because I've gone to that place or I've been in that place, but because it's a human character trait. And we get that in in this movie, we get it in in other films that we've covered, uh, I think in some ways more effectively, seeing a person's breakdown from, quote, normal to to abnormal. And it's, it's, it's an element of storytelling and character development that I will gravitate towards because it's, it's really all about psychology. And I'm a big psychology guy. I love exploring that and seeing that. And I, I love when a filmmaker is able to attempt and risk being laughed at or being kind of given the weird looks to make, um, to, to try to explore that. And I think Kubrick did a pretty good job of that with Jack. So this scene really stands out for a number of reasons, but that being the main one. Yep. Yeah. And it's, it's memorable too. I mean, it is, it is definitely memorable that that breakdown is you don't get to be a famous scene like that, that everyone knows everyone can quote and everyone can tell you where it came from, what movie, who, who was in it. Um, without being a great example of that. So yeah, that's, that makes sense. Well, I don't have much anymore. I think connecting point really kind of puts the exclamation point on this show, but if you guys want to continue the conversation, you can find us in the Facebook group or we're there hanging out, talking about this movie, other movies. I think we'll probably be talking about the golden globes at some point this week. Cause that was kind of a 
thing that happened uh, tonight. But if you want to connect with me specifically on social media, you can find me at Shoeless Patch. I'm at S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the big three. You can always find me on there. Feel free to at me with your thoughts on this or other movies that we've covered or just your thoughts on movies in general. Uh, next week, we're going to be covering The Post, which I'm really excited about. Uh, I've gotten a chance to watch it recently, and uh, it came up in our end-of-the-year discussion. So I'm excited to kind of expand our conversation a little bit with the performances, the overall story. And, uh, and next week, week two, we continue Kubrick Month with a you know a slightly complex film, 2001, A Space Odyssey. So if you guys want to join us in that, feel free to break out about four to five hours of your life <laughs> and pop that movie in because it's, it's pretty long. It's about three hours. Um, and, the podcast and will not be three hours. Okay. So we are not going to – I'm going to set the stage real quick for that. We'll probably say this again at the beginning of that episode. But we're not going to go scene by scene. Um, we're going to talk about the film <laughs> in the same way that we talk about every film, which is how it emotionally resonates and affects us. We're not right going to try and – break every single thing down about that. Yes. Um, yeah. Much like this one with fan theories, uh, that one could get uh, pretty deep real quick. Um, Sorry, we'll but yeah, my mistake. I was implying to spend about three hours, three to four hours of your life watching the movie because it's a very yes. lengthy movie. There's a lot of slow burns. And if you haven't, it's just, it's a great movie to watch. It is. It is. We highly recommend you seeing it, uh, but then come back and listen to podcast for sure. Bonus. <laughs> I'm also excited about talking about the post next week as well, Patrick. So hopefully um, that, that's going to be a good conversation. And that is also going to be a lead in to our first connecting with the classics episode. That's got our tie in rather that's going to come. Uh, that one will be out within a couple weeks as well. And that is going to be on all the president's men. Uh, so the post and all the president's men have a, a very strong connection between them and I'm really excited about kicking that series off with Don Shanahan and um, just getting to go through some of the AFI top 100 films and having listeners be a part of that conversation and, and a part of that challenge. Actually, speaking of that challenge, check our website out uh, for the post. Not Wait, that's confusing. Uh, for the blog post on <laughs> connecting with the classics, there's an announcement if you go look at the blog section of our, re of our read tab. And what that'll do is that will give you the details about how you can participate in our Connecting with the Classics uh, challenge. Uh, and that's going to result in some prizes at the end of the year if you complete all of the tasks that are necessary. So um, do that as well. Also, we just want to mention that those written reviews are coming out every single week of films that are in the theater as well as some other special features. So be sure to check out the website for that. And also for guest contributor and former guest co-host, Reed Lackey's uh, year-long jump into Clint Eastwood's filmography. He's going to be working his way through the movies of Clint Eastwood as both a director and an actor. I think there's 60 total that he's going to cover. There's an initial post up now that talks about what his plan is and the way he's going to be doing that and what he's looking for. And then we will be hosting all of his reviews for those movies uh, as he goes. So please follow along with that. As well, Reed is uh, the co-host of a podcast called The Fear of God that is a horror-based podcast that examines the intersection between uh, faith and horror films, which is really, really good stuff, and also a contributor to a website and podcast called More Than One Lesson. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can always do that in that amazing face group, Facebook group, which you can find links to uh, on the show notes or on our website or just by searching Feel and Film in Facebook. 
Uh, and you can also find me tweeting from Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E, and from the show's Twitter account at Film. Thank you, Aaron. And thank you guys for listening. That about wraps it up for this episode. Be sure to check us out next week, as we mentioned, and every week. And if you haven't, check out our backlog of episodes where we explore all these movies that make us feel something. Until next time, stay positive and keep feeling film.